This week on The Zone of Truth, it's a subsystem smackdown as Griff and I discuss the conversion of Skull and Shackle's various minigames and mechanics to 2E and, of course, answer some listener questions. I'm your host, Steve, in the studio with your GM and my co-host, Griffin. Roll a will save. You're in The Zone of Truth. We're back. We're back. Yes. What a day we've had. Yeah. Couple Skull and Shackles episodes. Yeah. It's a Sunday. We got together early with the full Skull and Shackles crew. We recorded two. No spoilers, but I thought they were bangers. I don't think they'll have come out by the time this episode drops, so we can't say anything, right? I think. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Too bad. (laughs) But they were good. You guys got something to look forward to. That's for sure. How are you hanging in there, Griff? I'm doing well. Yeah, we got the day off of work tomorrow. Yeah, we got the President's day off tomorrow. Day. Very excited. Got any plans? <laughs> no. Same. <laughs> Just hanging. It's, it's actually going to be really nice because we're heading to Michigan for Nordic Fire Fest the next mm-hmm. week. So I think you and I have three-day work weeks next week. Yep. And then I took Monday off after that fest. So I'm going to go back to back in a three-day work week and a four-day work week and I really need it. I really need the time off because, you know, as I've said, I think on another zone of truth, (laughs) work has been hectic and it'll be nice to have some time. For sure, man. So let's get our listeners in the headspace for this fire fest. We're definitely all dressing up. We're bringing basically the whole crew out there. What are you wearing? I'm wearing my same leather armor that I made for last year brown with green highlights yeah brown with green highlights some norse runes on it and i'm doing the like pelt underneath the legs arms and torso Mm -hmm. i don't think i'm wearing anything on my head although i might go in with the makeup with you this year we'll see yeah but i'll comb my beard for it i've been i've been thinking for the past couple weeks oh i think it's time to shave the beard and then i was like uh it's fire fest coming up i should at least keep it for that, and then I can do what I want. So that's what I've been waiting for. But um, yeah, pretty similar outfit to last year. I'm trying to decide if I actually want to bring like my sword or something because I remember it kind of being like a little bit more restricted on weapons than like the Renfair was, mm. and also lugging that around for like a 12-hour day a feels like a lot. I'll have to see what Eric's gonna do because he he got that new battle axe, but that thing is like. 15 pounds yeah he said he's gonna wear it so we'll see if he does it both days yeah because that's a lot but it's a badass axe as for me you know i am head to toe black furs looking like a pagan shaman the outfit itself is going to be basically identical i'm going to have the like big blacked out batman smoky eye but i'm doing black lipstick as well this year i'm gonna be looking hot but then i'm also have upgraded my staff a little bit so I wrapped up some extra fur on there. I have this little like carved deer antler that I got off of Etsy that I mounted on top. I think it's looking pretty cool. So nice. We're definitely going to be sharing some pictures. I think basically everyone that's going is going to be dressing up. It's going to be a lot of fun. Anything else you wanted to chat about? What's been going on? Anything you get? been exciting? I finished up Has Been Hotel last yeah. time I was watching it. It was really good. I really enjoyed that series. It was only a 10 episode long series and they were only like 25 minute episodes. So, you know, they're renewed for season two and whatever. So that'll be exciting. Still playing Power World. Think I have like 
the hundred something hours in it with Haley, but I've gotten to the end game of it where I max level and I've caught all the legendary pals. Nice. So uh, about through it, I'd say until they release new content, but got real deep into the breeding mechanics there. Bred myself a couple new pals. Yeah, that's about it, really. I'm kind of the same, man. My list of stuff that I was going to talk about today is basically the same as last time. Still got Re4 Madness, Resident Evil 4. Yeah. Yeah. I wrote that down on the agenda. I thought that was a good pun. But yeah, so now I'm probably, oh, geez, probably like six or eight hours deep into that game. It's just a super slick action horror shooter. It's a blast. I really, really, really love it. And then I watched eight episodes of The Vampire Diaries last night, which is why I was up till two in the morning. So I am pretty deep into that show undetermined yet if I'm team Stefan or team Damon. Stefan's kind of the Edward of the show. He's kind of the original and Damon is like a real bad boy. So the twist on this, Griff, is that it's a love triangle, much like your True Bloods and your Twilights, but the love triangle is with two vampires and their brothers. So pretty awkward. Yeah, that's awkward. Another strange thing that I realized, Damon... Also an ex-Confederate soldier. So that is Jasper in Twilight, What's-His-Fuck in True Blood, and Damon in Vampire Diaries. Weird trend. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I was going to say, there's a lot of weird trends. Yeah. Seen some parallels here. The being team one versus team the other is uh, Mm -hmm. pretty par for the course, I guess. Yeah, two guys fighting over the same girl type of thing. Let me tell you, show's great. Really enjoying it, and there's eight seasons of it and some spinoff shows apparently so I got my work cut out for me yeah there's a lot there yeah deep well to pull from and I'll certainly keep the listeners updated because I know they really want to hear about it but that's the same stuff as last week man like I haven't had a whole lot of time otherwise to explore anything new because similar to you work's been crazy and I've just kind of been counting down the days to this Nordic Firefest. I guess with all that considered, maybe we just get into the episode. Sounds good to me. (laughs) We're not doing a seltzer review pack today, though I will say our next live episode, I want to do the new monster pack. The, what is it called? The Nasty Nasty Beast. Beast. Awful name. (laughs) No idea how that got through the marketing team and everybody signed off on it. But yeah, Nasty Beast is coming. It's their tea flavors. I'm very excited. Haven't tried them yet. We get our honest reactions on air. But for the meantime, today, I thought it would be a good idea for us to sit down and talk about the various subsystems and conversions being at play in the Skull and Shackles campaign, because there's kind of a lot of them and we've talked about them on air, but I don't think we've dived too far into what they've been converted from and maybe some of your methodologies of converting things or opinions on the old versus the new. So I just kind of wanted to get all that out there and just kind of chat about it. It'd be fun. Sure. So I guess my first question to you, and this is going to be a largely interview format episode, I think. I just have a whole bunch of questions I want to ask. So when we first announced this show, there was a little bit of murmurings from the listeners about, oh, I wonder how they'll do book one, because I don't think it has the best reputation among people who have read it and people that have played it. Do you think that reputation is justified? And you have played through this as a player, so you do have some actual experience. You haven't just read it. Yeah, I think it's somewhat justified. 
it's difficult to get your group to buy into this book one. I mean, as, as you've seen with our show, you know, we're 13, 14 episodes in at this point of being on a boat mm-hmm. and like there really aren't a ton of combats and you're actively discouraged from fighting people. And, you know, it's kind of unique as a book one because your main antagonist is like so far ahead of you level wise that it's impossible as low level characters to fight them. Yeah. And there's kind of like this no win scenario of if you build someone tooled for fighting, you're probably not going to be great at doing a whole bunch of like convincing of people to join your side, Mm -hmm. which is kind of what this whole front end of this book seems to be about but you can't really fight anybody because you're not supposed to at least you know sometimes you'll get pushed into that situation but on the flip side if you're like a very charismatic character an intelligent character who can relate to other people you're suffering effects from being bad at like physical labor so it feels like a little bit of a no-win situation i know that's largely deliberate yeah i mean it's meant to make you really dislike the situation you're in. <laughs> That's the kind of the point of the early part of book one. But a lot of people's tables, you know, a lot of players get frustrated with it and want to, you know, I, I've heard of tables like being through what has taken us 13 episodes in like a session and a half. So they'll just kind of look at it from like uh Instead of role-playing things, let's just bust through these tables of roles. Yeah, like, I roll to influence. Okay, I do or don't. Okay, I, you know, I roll to explore this certain part of the ship. Okay, I do or don't. Okay, what's there? Okay, I get whipped five times. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Which is a whole lot less fun, in my opinion, but is how tables that don't really value role-play would probably play through this part. Sure. There's some components of it in... 1E that I think age better Mm. with 2E. We're going to get into the subsystems, but I think in general, 2E characters are a lot more well-rounded than 1E characters. And unless you build something like a skill monkey, like a rogue in 1E, you're going to have trouble, like you said, doing certain things. If you build a wizard for this campaign, you are not going to get to like roll on any of the physical ability things, mm-hmm. I think. Whereas, you know, your psychic has athletics, for instance. Yeah. I'm like playing the glass cannon on the show and still have not always been successful, but have succeeded more times than failed at these very labor intensive tasks. Right. And conversely, the way I've converted the influence system has allowed you guys to use more than diplomacy to influence crewmates and I think that helps I think that gives a character like Wit with no charisma skills an opportunity to try Mm -hmm. and if you don't do that you're obviously just going to have the bard try and influence somebody every night and everyone else is either going to gamble or go to sleep Sure. so with that upgrade in addition with the more well-rounded characters with the uh, very lethal rum rations in 1E not being lethal in 2E I think it makes it a lot easier to play through Okay, all fair and a lot of stuff you brought up we are definitely going to dive into a little bit but before we do I know before we started this show there was a question of what we're going to do for book one because we have some prior experience on the show with book one etc and anecdotally I've heard people 
take this book completely out of the adventure and replace it with something else. Were you ever tempted to do that? I did kind of think about replacing it with book one of Serpent Skull, Mm -hmm. but in the end, I realized that the connections you form with the characters in book one is going to be far more important than having a adventure that starts as an adventure from the very beginning. Yeah. Uh, You know, the experiences you guys have in book one of Skull and Shackles are going to inform the rest of the adventure. And to me, that outweighed an adventure that is probably easier for radio and easier for everyone to feel more involved in. Mm -hmm. It's always difficult to string pieces of different adventures together. Like, it's doable to take that book one and replace it in Skull and Shackles, but it basically becomes an adventure where you know no one. Right. It is a very strong book one. It has a really good reputation, even though the larger Surface Soul campaign is largely pretty panned, it seems like. And it does seem, at least from what I've heard, that it would be a good replacement, but at the expense of when you read through book one of Serpent Skull, there are like five NPCs that survive this shipwreck with you. Sorry if that's spoilers. It's the first five minutes of the campaign. They're like, you are shipwrecked and it starts. And essentially, you can influence and hang out with those folks, but I think it would be very difficult to do that adventure and dump like 30 NPCs on that beach. Exactly, which was kind of the option. Yeah. It's like, if you want to have the same character investment, you need those other NPCs. You need to somehow have Captain Harrigan still be important. Mm-hmm. What would this book one be if you guys didn't hate Scourge and Plug? You know, it like would, think about just that. Us hanging out. There's no, like... there's no tension to the adventure at all. Mm-hmm. So I thought on it, and I, you know, inevitably came to the conclusion that either I would have to port it in in the back half of book one or ignore it entirely. And the back half of book one in Skull and Shackles is relatively strong. Good. From the perspective of like, it's easily an equal to what Serpent Skull is. So that's exciting. If I were to do that, I'd be trading a similar adventure for a similar adventure at that point. And it's like, okay, well then why bother? Yeah. So we'll just kind of tighten up the things on the front end that are a little looser and then be ready to rock and roll for the back half of that book. So I want to circle back to a point that we made a moment ago that you have prior experience with that adventure path. This was an off pod game that our friend Eric ran. It was yourself, our good buddy, John. We had Haley, um, one or two other guys. This was a long, long time ago. Our buddy Andrew was like every other session at best. Yeah. Yeah, So it was mostly us three. Mm -hmm. And so... This is kind of a double barrel question here. How did that off pod run go of this first half of book one? And how did that influence what you wanted to do with book one for the show? I think it was a lot more difficult to influence NPCs in 1E. Mm-hmm. That influence system just works differently. It's like a static DC yeah. to change their attitude. And in 2E, it's based off of their will save, which you know some of these characters are templated at level zero so their will dc is not that high Mm -hmm. Uh, so it's a lot easier to influence certain people it's harder to influence other people which i think works yeah because in the book you're not supposed to be influencing many of the officers in 2e with that system it makes it impossible and there is 
for example, I will speak vaguely, but there is a character that we tried to influence in an episode that we just recorded earlier today that is a little difficult. And someone tried to influence that character and failed with a pretty decent role. And it's like, well, if it was just a static number, that personality should not have been influenced, right? Like Mm -hmm. the dynamic will DC to hit is a little bit more realistic than just a flat across the board check. Right. And the instances of critting were basically just in that 20 and 1E, whereas, you know, for some of these easier influence people, if you're rolling something that you're good at, you can crit on, you know, 17, 18, 19, 20. Mm-hmm. And so you guys have made much more friends than we did in our run. And I was playing a bard, so we had a bard. Maybe it's because there were only three of us versus five. Mm-hmm. So we got a lot less actions. But, you know, with a bard, a swashbuckler, and a summoner, all three charisma classes, we weren't able to make as many friends as you guys had. Wow. I think we got punished a lot more too (laughs) because of skill compression in 2e there's a lot more opportunities for you guys to have the skill Mm -hmm. that is required in one of these actions if you didn't have it in 1e you were just at a zero and it was like okay i'm making a bunch of athletics checks as a swab still and basically rolling like calypso but for everything yeah It seems to be a little bit more forgiving, which I think is good, at least for what we're trying to accomplish here. One more question before we hop into these actual subsystems individually. So a lot of this 2E conversion of old APs has been done by the community. So for the conversion of these mechanics that we're going to be talking about, did you do all of that yourself or do we need to credit anybody? If so, how much was their work versus a little bit of tweaking on your end. I'm just curious how this conversion happened. Sure. Some of the stuff is straight 1E rules versus 2E rules Mm -hmm. as with the like influence system. A lot of it with like the tasks and that kind of stuff is a conversion that was done by Varen SL, who basically for the most part took the 1E DCs and converted them to 2E DCs and the appropriate skill for those things. And then, I mean, they've done a conversion of the entire AP, but most of the crewmates I have custom built. So they're all built to reflect the various classes that I've given them because I wanted them all to be viable cohorts for you guys going forward. At the beginning of the campaign, I can't really know who you're going to be drawn to. At this point, it's almost (laughs) the entire crew that you've befriended. And so I wanted them each to be able to contribute more than like being a static sailor stat block or something Mm -hmm. so they're all built to be like a essentially a scaled down like level zero or level one wizard or a monk or whatever they all have that and so i built all of them before we started the campaign and the ones that you keep will all have like a level one character sheet that you guys will be able to influence how they level up you know, behind you. Sweet. So from that perspective, I've done that. But yeah, Varen did a very good job converting, you know, I mean, even to the point of here's a foundry add in like for the rollable tables and that kind of stuff, which is awesome. If you're running it in 2E, go look that conversion up. It's in a series of dice based events and it's fantastic for running book one because 
there's all of that. You know, the punishments are in there. Some of the special weapons and stuff that come later are converted in there. And so, yeah, it's good stuff. Hell yeah, man. All right. Now for what we all came here for today. So we're getting into the subsystems. We're going to talk about a whole bunch of stuff around them. So we can hit what they looked like in first edition. If you have experience with these subsystems in first edition, if it was relevant, how you feel the conversions worked. And yeah, now that we're several episodes deep, do you think that the conversions that you and the community had put together deliver on what was intended for the original printing of the subsystem? So there's a whole bunch of ones out here, and I don't even know if I've captured them all, but I certainly tried. First one, let's start easy, ships tasks. So we got rigger table, swab table, cook table. We have a random roll to see how tasks are determined and then there are rolls and saves for said tasks. Interestingly, you know, throw some like lore skills in there with lower DCs. Just a whole bunch of like big blanket questions here. So do you think that the ship tasks poured over well to Tui? How they feel? Just like just kind of just an open conversation here. I think they do. I think what's difficult is that some of the tasks in 1E really don't give you a actual skill. A lot of them are like, make a strength check, make a dexterity check, like oh. and that's very 5E to me, which is kind of weird. Not a lot of stuff going forward from first edition had like, make a constitution check, like it would be a fortitude save. Sure. And all of that is present in some of the tasks, which I think is to kind of make them accessible to anyone. But what that ends up being is that, like, if your character isn't dexterous, you're just rolling a flat 50-50 shot at some of these things. If your character isn't strong, you're rolling a flat 50-50 shot, and that doesn't reward the character that's taken like in in first edition if you took climb even though you have dexterity or you took acrobatics or whatever it doesn't reward you for being invested in that that is so strange and also in first edition it was a lot more prevalent for someone to have a negative ability score modifier Mm -hmm. so yeah that's that's really difficult yeah, like there's a lot of intelligence or strength or con or dexterity checks that it's like, hey, a lot of these could be like a fortitude save or a crafting check. Mm-hmm. They didn't have blanket crafting in 1E. So. Right, it was all individual, yeah. like crafting rope work, crafting woodwork, mm-hmm. that type of stuff. And like a lot of them don't even value that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think the two things that you actually get to roll on are if you have in one e it was profession like if you have profession fisherman Mm -hmm. that helps the fishing tasks if you have profession sailor that kind of subs in for sailing lore in a lot of the checks or if you have profession cook that's great if you're the cook's mate but you have like a you know one person in the party is going to be that so it ends up not really being super helpful yeah absolutely All right, so on top of that, there is an extra layer of stuff you can do during the day. Work diligently, you can shop, you can shirk your responsibilities, you can sneak. So same kind of basic question as before. I don't know how to express this. This is a fun layer on top of everything. I don't know what this looked like in first edition. Just kind of, what are your thoughts here? 
I mean, it's not one to one. For mm-hmm. example, like work diligently in the one E version is gain a plus four bonus on any one check mm-hmm. for a job's daily task. In two E, it's a plus two. With the tighter math, I think with that the tighter math, works yeah. Better. Um, I'm not mad about getting less of a bonus in two E. Influence and sneak basically work the same. Shop works the same, except the penalty is scaled in half, and shirk is the same but scaled in half. So they're pretty much the same options, just with 2E's math versus 1E's math. Sure, so pretty simple conversion there, just one for one. All right, so you mentioned shopping. This is a adventure where your ability to get gear is very restricted in the beginning. In fact, it kind of gets taken away and you're able to work with it. Is it intentional that Grok the Quartermaster is kind of friendly right away to ease that on the players or did we just stumble into her good graces or did you push that our way i mean you influenced her i obviously kind of pushed her at you guys by including her in the like preamble that like none of that stuff that you guys did Mm -hmm. before getting on the ship is in the adventure oh and hey while we're there that was a society scenario right i don't think we explicitly mentioned this on air it was kind of a little bit chopped and screwed version of port peril pub crawl which is a first level society i think they're like quests mm-hmm. the like the short ones shorter than a society scenario so the printed adventure does not start at hlp episode one it starts whenever we get on the boat yeah. right mm-hmm. yeah you start having been press ganged gotcha and like you don't start with connections to any of the NPCs. Mm, I get you, man. So they start very much the same. Like you get a single item from Sandy of like light bulk or less, and you know that like Rock has all of your stuff. So most people tend to gravitate towards her because you want to get your stuff back. Some people steal it back. Some people buy it back you know there are ways to get like in one e it's like oh she returns like 10 gold worth of your equipment for every point you bluff her better than her sense motive or something you know sure there's a little bit of a subsystem on the recovering gear and that's usually such a sticking point for the pcs that i kind of wanted to have it over and done with early Mm -hmm. so having you guys sell back stolen stuff and get your stuff back was a way to kind of sweep that under the rug and let you have your equipment. Well, as a player on the show, I can certainly say that I appreciate that because then that just becomes the focus of like haggling with a quartermaster. And as much fun as that sounds, doesn't sound great for radio. I did start her one attitude level ahead because of the interactions you guys had with both her and Ambrose in the beginning Mm -hmm. piece. So everyone that interacted with you in that bar fight, besides like Scourge and Plug and Harrigan and whatever, all had their initial attitude towards you boosted by one. Cool. Okay. Let's get into the bad stuff. Bloody Hour Punishments. Sure. Bloody Hour Punishments in 1E probably feel a little bit more lethal, right? Because you don't have the stages of dying safety nets. You don't have the stages of dying safety net, but in 2E, like, non-lethal can't kill you. Mm -hmm. So non-lethal works different in both systems, which kind of changes (laughs) changes the issue there. Because in 1E, 
you could definitely be killed by non-lethal. Yeah. If you like kept getting whipped after you were unconscious, it all contributes to you dying. But I think the actual rolls are pretty much the same with the cat and the regular whip and that kind of stuff. It's just, you know, you can die from it in 1E, which yeah. is why I made the cat of nine tails, like instead of doing non-lethal, it does lethal so that it's a bigger risk. Yeah, and certainly leaves an impression on your players. If that's basically everything for Bloody Hour, we haven't really seen an actual rolled out mechanical keel haul. We kind of got it mm -hmm. cutscened. So I'm sure there's something there if it ever does come up. It kills you in 1E just like it kills you in 2E. Yeah. It's, yeah, if you're not a high level character, it's going to kill you. Sure. Let's talk uh, rum rations. I feel like this is maybe of everything, the stuff that I hear the most bitching about in 1E. Yeah, so in 1E, rum rations were if you failed that check, you took a D3 of con damage. I think Atlas might not make it out of book one if yeah, that's the case which there's really not a ton to help you through that in first edition like you remove one ability damage per night that you sleep but that impacts a ton of stuff you know that impacts your fortitude saves for future rum rations that impacts your hit point pool that impacts your some of the ship tasks right yeah so your ship tasks you're gonna be worse at those you're gonna be on bloody hour more often because you failed at those yep so it really starts to stack in a bad way mm -hmm. in this conversion. So in the conversion by Varen, it's just you're fatigued or you're not. Yeah. And I added in the levels of fatigue and the drain just to make it so that it's not like <laughs> you could just take this, right? Mm -hmm. At least one he has fatigued and then exhausted, which would be what would happen if you became fatigued twice, you'd become exhausted, which is a way worse penalty. Tui doesn't have that, so there needs to be something there that can simulate that. But yeah, in 1E, it was just people would die to the rum rations, and everyone's like, that's stupid. That's not how, like, alcohol works. <laughs> alcohol works. Fair point. All right, nighttime activities. We got sleeping, gambling, entertaining, influencing, sneaking, stealing. Kind of like the extra stuff on top of the daytime activities is this basically a straight it's, over? it's just dc's swapped yeah really. i mean they all do the same thing the sleep is obviously different it removed fatigue in 1e or took your exhausted to fatigued mm -hmm. in 2e it's obviously removing like that level of fatigue that we've talked about and also like drain if you remove the fatigue in in 1e i think if you didn't sleep it just didn't clear fatigue so you could be fatigued the next day. So we spent a ton of time in our 1E run just sleeping because we'd become fatigued from the daily activities and we'd have that penalty from the rum ration, which made it easier to get fatigued. And then we would just be like, okay, I need to sleep so I'm not fatigued tomorrow mm -hmm. so that I can actually perform my tasks. To get off the treadmill? Mm -hmm. That's tough, man. This front half of book one seems absolutely brutal in first edition yeah and it, a lot of times you didn't want to take like the extra actions at night because your fortitude <laughs> saves were penalized and you didn't want to become exhausted mm -hmm. which wouldn't go away and you're exhausted the next day like you said it was like a treadmill of okay now i always have to sleep so your bard me ended up sleeping all the time because i was always fatigued or exhausted and, and then you're i wasn't supposed influencing, to be influencing people yeah, yeah. 
I wasn't influencing or entertaining or any of that. Mm -hmm. So it sucked in the sense that it felt like you weren't really making any progress because you were always on this treadmill. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking about influence, that is a big freaking part of this first book. Yeah. So I do think we've answered some of the pre-written questions that I have here. Like, are some people easier to influence than others? I think we've said it out loud now that it is based on a will DC. So that is just what it is. I know there are some folks that come into this indifferent to us. There are some that come a little higher or lower on the do they like us scale. How many people are there on this ship to influence? There's 30 if you include the captain and officers. Obviously, you're not really influencing the captain or many of the officers, which then kind of leaves you with, you can obviously influence Grok and Fish Guts, and that leaves you with 22. Wow. So this is less a question about the subsystem of influence itself, but how do you prep that many NPCs for one book? That's a lot, man. Well, I think what helped was creating kind of the character sheet of each one. Okay. And kind of knowing off the rip who you were going to talk to first, at least in the sense that like, okay, you went through the press gang with four NPCs plus Grok and Fish Guts, six. So I kind of knew early on, those are probably going to be the ones that you're going to talk to first. You could probably punt some of the ones we might not run into early to really develop their personality or whatever till you had more time and other things were a little bit more established. Exactly. By the same token, like the ones that jumped you guys, I knew you would immediately think are more difficult to influence, which they are. Mm -hmm. They start hostile to you. And so getting a feel for how you guys were going about it at the beginning, I could pretty easily pick which NPCs I figured you would talk to. And you guys gave me a lot of leeway in the sense that you were like, well, who would I find over here? And I could be like, oh, well, it's so-and-so. You find uh, Cogs because I'm ready with Cogs. Yeah, exactly. So there was a lot of like, okay, I'm going to take this from the top and try and put people that are indifferent to you early so that you can build a rapport with them and make them friendly. Mm-hmm. And then, as you've noticed, like, the longer we've gone, the more the starting attitude of the people that you're talking to is more negative to you. Yeah. So, last question here about subsystems. Is there anything off-camera that you'd like to share with us? Any subsystems, roles, tables, whatever, that are happening that we're unaware of? Or is there anything that you cut wholesale from the first edition version? Sure. There's obviously the infamy and disrepute system that's present in the first book that fortunately you guys don't really interact with Mm -hmm. until you are further along because you're not doing anything infamous as pirates right now. But that is a system that's still in play and I'm kind of treating that more like the one piece bounty system where the higher your bounty, the more infamous you are, the more you can like call in favors from other pirates, the more you can get a deal in certain ports. There's a whole kind of slew of things that come along with it that are converted from first edition. First edition had like big tables of like, if you're this infamous, here's the things you can do. If you're this infamous, here's the things you can do. Sure. And certain amounts of plunder that you have or like certain big milestone things that you do 
earned you infamy and disrepute. Mm-hmm. Infamy is like the points you can use, and disrepute is like your total level. Sure. So that will exist. It's just not something that you guys are aware of yet. Yeah, we're just some rolling slobs. The ship-to-ship combat stuff will happen. We're using the smoke and sails module for now, unless I decide that that's not really working for us either. Mm-hmm. The 1E system is kind of jank and not really well thought through. Sure. I think salt and sails kind of works a little bit closer to like 1E Starfinder ship combat. Oh, and has roles for you all to do on the ship. So we'll run with that unless Paizo releases an adventure with a 2E version of ship-to-ship combat, and then we'll take a look at that. Yeah. Makes sense to me, man. All right. Well, you ready to answer some listener questions? Sure. Sure. So lots of discussion today about first edition versus second edition and how we've been playing it. We got a very relevant question here. This comes from Nikki McM of Offer Discord. 2E lends itself to storytelling quite well. The math is tight, actions are streamlined, and this leads to a generally cohesive story. I know at least a few of the cast have gone on record saying that they still love 1E, but do any of you still play it off pod? If so, what campaign and PCs are present? Also, what aspects of 1E do you wish would get a 2E translation? Which mechanics are you glad to be away from? I think Chris is the only one who is still playing first edition. He is playing a strange Aeons game off pod. Yep. I don't think anybody else is. I think the last one thing we played was Dragon's Demand. Yeah, that's right, I believe. Yeah. And I think the further we get away from it, the less attractive it becomes to me. Yeah, I mean, obviously the last, last thing we all played in one was Carrying Crown. Mm-hmm. You know, I still really like the system, yeah. but especially as we move to digital it's a lot easier to play 2e on foundry Mm -hmm. and it's honestly a system that's a lot easier to gm the gm's really got to want to play 1e for me to want to play 1e and if i'm gming it i'd rather play it in 2e Mm -hmm. at this point just because it's a lot less prep yeah as far as the back end of this question the big thing that i wanted to get a conversion of was that like library combat from first edition which i do believe we it had exists. A, a version yeah. of that in, in malevolence at least yeah the research system still exists and i think is kind of like supposed to be that mm-hmm. and i think it works pretty well i i do appreciate that that made its way over to two so there's not anything offhand that i really need to see a translation for is there anything there or any mechanics you're glad to be away from i think there's like a whole host of little like sub mechanics that i wasn't too hot on i wish there was a hero point variant that i liked better or like a way to sub out hero points that mechanically allows the system to not crumble yeah that's something that like i kind of miss about 1e is that there wasn't just a okay i'm not dying anymore button or like okay i don't want to fail that role like there were ways that you could get a benefit like that but you had to do it mechanically in the system yeah it seems like there was a lot more general consistent tension about death in first edition i mean there were late level or I guess mid to late level combats in the HLP where it's like, we really can't take this like mook fight for granted because somebody could legitimately die in it. And in 2E, I think there's a little bit less of that where it's like, sure, dying and wounded are still a thing. 
but I do feel like there's a little bit more of a safety net and some of the throwaway quote-unquote combats, there's a little less tension there. Yeah, I do wish there was more of an expanded utility spell option for, like I know some classes get it, like Magus gets like, here's some utility spells that you always have access to even though your bounded casting is changing levels. But I feel like in 1E, you had a lot more opportunity as a caster to be like, well, I'm saving some of my spell slots. And I took a feat that's like quick study or something that lets me re-prepare stuff when I need it. And in 2E, it feels a little bit more restricted Mm -hmm. for what a caster can do. And I get that from the like combat capability perspective that you want them to be in line. And I know that a lot of like skills have replaced kind of what magic had to do in 1e but by the same token i kind of wish there was a better way to stock up on scrolls for instance like sure like you can definitely do it in 2e but the economy is such that it's a lot harder to pull off than in 1e where you could just like have 300 level one scrolls and it was just like okay all these utility things that i need i'm just gonna make scrolls of and have them forever instead of like, oh, I'm a scroll trickster. I have it for a day and then I got to make a new one. Yeah, I feel you on that. Well, I think we're headed towards the end here. I just want to end on this kind of one for you, one for me question from Finder. Finder is asking about some of your house rules for Skull and Shackles. So he says, hey, Griff, you implemented some house rules in Skull and Shackles. Can you please explain your decisions for them? I really like the hero point change. And I think the other one was the non-lethal yeah. spell mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah, I think the non-lethal one's just important for a group that like is actively forbidden from killing characters. I wouldn't hate if we just made that a blanket rule across all our 2E games. Yeah, I, th- I think it really gives you a better option mm-hmm. to end things without killing. And a lot of parties want that option. A lot of groups in... 1E would do that. Like, you'd have somebody that was proficient at doing non-lethal damage, and because of the way non-lethal damage worked, you could always take someone prisoner, or you could always you could always end something without killing someone, as long as, you know, they're not a creature immune to non-lethal or something. So I wanted to have that so you guys could feel like you're participating in combat, especially the casters, mm-hmm. while still not getting keel hauled. <laughs> As far as like the hero point change, I think A, it's, you know, if it's going to be a part of the system, it should be a benefit. I think the like roll twice, take the better instead of roll twice, take whatever the second one was just encourages their use outside of I'm saving these for when I'm dying, Mm -hmm. which is my least favorite use of hero points. And I think the Besmara's favor system kind of works in that way where it's like, hey, you still have this get out of jail free card, but you should really consider not using it unless you really have to. Yeah, it definitely has drastically dropped the amount of hero points used on the show. Compared to our off pod Reign of Winter game or the Speak with Plants game or Bestow Curse, there are so many fewer uses of hero points in our Skull and Shackles game. And I think it's because of the card system. And I think it lets the dice tell the story a little bit better Yeah. than it would have. I mean, there's a lot of, like, the subsystems in 2E already are lending to you guys having an easier time. Mm-hmm. If you had pretty consistent access to hero points, 
then that would change everything to a success, it feels like. Yeah. And because there's so many skill checks and so few combats that it would really invalidate things like, you know, wit critically failing the cooking role that had big story implications. None of that would have happened. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff that we would have just kind of erased and moved on. So I think from a narrative perspective, it definitely has positively impacted the campaign, even if it is at the detriment of our rolling sometimes. But I like it. I think it, I think it works for this particular campaign. The second half of Finder's question here is directed at me. So for Steve, what do you think of GMs implementing house rules? Do you prefer things by the book or do you enjoy these variants? I'm going to come out swinging here. GMs implementing house rules is a major, major red flag for me. Now, the reason that I'm okay with all of the house rules that you make, Griff, and that Haley might use on Speak With Plants or Tim might use on our Reign of Winter game is I trust all three of you implicitly and think you are very, very knowledgeable of the system and would not implement a house rule without thinking it through thoroughly and like you're smart people. If I just sit down at a table with new folks that I'm not familiar with and the GM rolls out some like whack off the book house rule stuff, I get worried right away. I get worried that it's going to throw off the game balance because this person is probably not a game designer. And then I get worried about what that means from a larger perspective for the campaign or the scenario or whatever that we're going to be playing, that this person might not have the tightest grasp of how to GM well. Mm -hmm. Fair or not, I'm willing to be wrong there. If I'm coming in blind to something, when I hear that we're doing things off book from a rules perspective, I immediately get very worried. I really have to trust the GM for me not to get concerned about something like that. You feel the same way? I think one thing that's important to think about when you kind of talk about house rules is how they impact both sides of the table. Sure. Because when you get a house rule from me, for instance, nine times out of 10, it's to your guys' benefit. Mm -hmm. And you know me as a GM will take that house rule that is to your benefit and push you in other ways. Right. And that's always been the way it's worked. I think GMs that are GMing like converted stuff kind of have to have an open mind to house ruling certain things. For instance, like the fatigue system and getting drained, like that's obviously not rules as written, but you have to trust me a little bit to put that in there so that there's actually stakes right, <laughs> in a converted right, right. adventure. And so I agree with your point 100%. If it's somebody that I don't know, just throwing house rules out at a session zero, I kind of will pause and think about how that actually impacts the table. Mm -hmm. A lot of house rules are like, I don't really like casters, so here's the house rules I have that limit casters. And it's like, well, you know, they exist in the system and should be allowed to be played as written. <laughs> I don't know why we're making these changes. Whereas if I listen to the house rules and I'm like, okay, that seems to benefit the table equally, or that's a house rule to make the table a little bit more equal in a system like Tui, like the you know like the non-lethal thing and letting casters actually participate in that, then I'm far more allowing of it. As a rule, I don't think you should house rule Tui. I obviously break that rule all the time, but the game is clean enough where you don't have. The game's very clean, and I think if you're trying to house rule like mechanics out, it doesn't work well. Mm -hmm. 
Like they're there for a reason. I wouldn't say that about every system, but 2E, I do think. Right. Like I, I love the World of Square house rules for 1E that we yeah. used in all of Carrying Crown. Those just feel like they make more builds viable. <laughs> yeah. Almost seem necessary for some, it feels yeah. like, especially at low levels. But yeah, I think I agree. I, I think we're, we're pretty much on lockstep on this one that they're important sometimes for like conversions or something. But generally, I'm a little apprehensive unless I'm very comfortable with the GM or it's a situation like, you know, like we've discussed. Mm-hmm. So I think that pretty much wraps up our discussion for today. This was a good one. I think I think people are going to enjoy it. We got a little bit of wrap-up and housekeeping to do. Our very own Emily did an episode of the Dubious Knowledge show on the 25 North feed. She talked with them about a rastle. You can download that now and check it out. But uh, it's going to be a fun one. Yeah. So do that. And you can also shortly hear Steve and myself, if you haven't, on Hideous Tom Foolery, which is our pod, but still recorded, run-through of... Attack of the Swarm that we play with our friends at the Strange Table Fellows Network. They are finishing up their main campaign and will be releasing two episodes of Hideous Tomfoolery every week until book three is done. Uh, it's hard to believe we've played three books of that. And Oh, book three's <laughs> not done. <laughs> well, yeah. I was saying in the Discord, it's going to be a photo finish for yeah, us to complete it in finish. time. Uh, we, I think we have like one session left to do. <laughs> Which we haven't gotten scheduled in like 10 months. Yeah. So you can go listen to us on their feed. And I mean, some of you have probably already listened to that, but it is now actually on an RSS feed instead of on archive.org or whatever it was so on. So the, the 101 jokes that we made about it never being an, on an yeah. RSS feed. Invalidated. <laughs> Invalidated. Um, all right, man. Well, I think that pretty much wraps up all our housekeeping. Great conversation with you today. I think a lot of people are going to appreciate this peek behind the screens. It was a little bit more of a crunchy one, but I think it was a good one. Anything that you want to say to the folks at home before we get out of here? No, I don't think so. We'll see you in two weeks. Later. Later.